We are full this morning. I think the ushers told me we had 302 here this morning. Yeah, we are busting at the seams. Um, what blanks did I miss, Lee? Oh, wow. Okay. I don't believe it. A Christmas miracle. One F. Confession. Confession. I'll just do them. Point one, amazement, controversy, or if you're British, controversy. Um, And then confession. And then point two, um, the how of and the who of his healing. And the man's parents feared the Jews. They would cast out anyone who confessed Jesus as Christ. Point three, D, confession. F, his faithful reasoning. Yet Jesus had done a greater work than Moses. Their fury, they condemn the man and cast him out. That's, that's all the blanks. So, um, questions on this section of John? This week's, last week, anything? you guys got oh Eric's got one so I wrote it down in my kids notebook which I then lost so you're going to get the gist of my question as opposed to the actual question okay um, this is not the actual question this is only a yeah this is the gist of the question was so the, the the Pharisees are there and Jesus is there and the parents are there and the parents are more afraid of the Pharisees then they are afraid of the Lord who caused the flood. Is there a certain point being made here about the Pharisees wielding the power of God with wrath and so forth? Uh, no, absolutely. As opposed to... The, the connection I was raking with Ezekiel 34 is these shepherds deal with force and harshly and... Here, here is Israel self-made. No, no one installed the Pharisees. The Pharisees is a is a, um, a grassroots organization. There's nothing in the law gives it ordinance, and it starts out simple enough and faithfully enough as like Torah schools, community-wide Torah schools. That's good, um, but they are they are self-appointed, and um, they gave themselves other gospels. Jesus talks about you sit in the seat of Moses. I mean, that's their, their self-designated position. And look how forceful and how afraid the flock is of them. Yeah. Um, that, that, that parents would distance themselves from their child who's just had this amazing work of God done. You, you've got to be some intimidating people. Um, yeah. But turn to chapter 12. The... Uh, we see the same thing again, that the, the, the shadow of the Pharisees or the Jews, John uses the two terms interchangeably in this passage, is large and looming. And, you know, and you're right, Eric, in one sense it's insane. How are you more afraid of these people than of God? But I think historically we all know that the fear of man is a very real snare, right? A very real problem. So John 12, the end of the public ministry of Jesus closes out in the middle of 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the Lord who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Let's say, see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Then 42, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So this is not a one-off. The Pharisees' intimidation program is, is relatively successful. So they've, in essence, become their own golden calf. Oh, yeah. No, they, they these... And, and again, that's what I'm trying to say. John, John um, paints a picture of them that will not allow us to feel sympathy for them as if somehow they just made a tragic mistake. The, the, man's, the man's conclusion that he comes to is where John... 
in one sense, they're, they're biblical scholars. They'd already put that together in three when they sent Nicodemus. We know your teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do. I mean, where the man gets to is really no further than where they got to. But he's doing it faithfully, willing to go where, the, where it leads. They know what they want the answer to not be, and they won't go there. And they've already ruled that option out of court. So they'll just keep asking their questions over and over again until they get answers they like. You know, we never do anything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but no, so John's revealing that. But the, the culmination of their corruption is in 11. In John 11, we, we often, I think, don't realize, that, I certainly didn't, the, the, the significance of this miracle in, in 9, because 11 so eclipses it, the raising of Lazarus. Um, but clearly in, in 9, the healing of the man born blind is a big, big deal. But look at them in, um, in chapter 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus. They get together and they have a, they have a discussion. Um, verse 47 of chapter 11. And, and John shows us again their corruption and what their real values are. These are not in well-intentioned, sincere men making an honest mistake. These are power-hungry, worldly, corrupt, wicked men who are trying to preserve their power. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. What do they really want? They want their place, and they want their nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the people should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So these guys, there are certain conclusions that are in bounds and there are certain conclusions that are out of bounds. And they are afraid that if people come to believe Jesus is the Messiah, because remember, the Messiah is king, mm-hmm. that Rome's going to come and squash them. And Rome's given them reason to think that's... I mean, in one sense, their fear is well founded. Rome does not put up with rebels well. Which they prove later that century. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Jesus might be a prophet. That's, that's in bounds. That's acceptable. Jesus might be a teacher. That's valid. That's possible. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be the king can't be the Davidic king because then Rome's going to swoop in and Rome's going to... Yeah, because they've forgotten the boy David. Right, right. So these, these guys, um, that, that's, that's their reasoning. So John shows us repeatedly, lest we... I mean, I, I know I keep saying it, this is not an innocent mistake. And no, they don't even really believe Moses. Jesus already said that. Right. This is pretensions and corruption. And we're seeing the corruption. That, so, yeah. Yeah, Caleb, up front here. Okay, so I just wanted to point out that it's interesting that uh, the words the Pharisees chose when they cast him out was, you were born in utter sin, and that was kind of along the same lines that the uh, disciples were asking, was it his sin or his parents? And it's obvious here that the uh, Pharisees had a prejudice against him probably even before he was healed because of his crippleness and his blindness and them judging him based on the fact that they thought it was either his sin or his parents right. for his blindness. And so then their words like saying you were born in utter sin and that's their final like excuse or, or I don't know, whatever you want to call it to, to actually cast him out. So No, they, they indicate, yeah, you deserve to be blind. They're not rejoicing that he was made to see. They think he deserved blindness. You're born in utter sin, and would you? <laughs> and again, it, it gets back to re- revealing the true motives. Their pride. Once he's pushing back and making it clear, I don't. Wait a sec. You guys are asking the same questions again. Why do you? It's not because you want to be his disciples. The, the 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 charades off. The masks are off. And now the real issue is we're not going to be taught by the likes of you. You're not going to correct us. You know um, that this is a power pride show. This isn't anything other than that. Yeah. Oh, are you bringing the mic somewhere, Don? Oh, Deb. Well, when you said the Pharisees were self-appointed, I guess I always assumed 
that Pharisees were Levites. No. Were, okay, so they, when they, did they that might, deteriorate? No they, might, no, they might be. So here's, here's the distinction. Um, as best as we know, see, the Pharisees just appear in the New Testament. The intertestamental books, like First and Second Maccabees, they give some historical background. But then the Pharisees was a grassroots... Um, it had less money, even though some of the Pharisees did have money. It had less money. So the Sadducees and the scribes, they're, they're the Levites, and they rule the temple. So the Levites, the scribes and the, and the Sadducees and the lawyers, they're the, um, they, the Levites ruled, ran the temple system. And they tend to be the Sadducees. They tend to be the, uh, the secular. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't, they don't believe in the afterlife. They are the social gospel people. The only value of religion is for here and now. And the Pharisees were a grassroots organization, probably more like traders, middle-class people. Um, and they, they it's, I mean, we've we got to be sympathized with them and recognize that the ditch they fall, fell into is the ditch we're going to be more in danger of than the Sadducee ditch. They, so they come back from Babylon, and the one thing Babylon does, apparently, is cure Israel of overt idolatry. Whereas before Babylon, Israel would go and play the whore under every tall tree and, and worship Molech and worship um, Ashtaroth, and that, that, that's done. I mean, they're hard idolaters still, but overt idolatry is done. And it's, best as we can reconstruct it, the Pharisees' goal was we don't ever want that to happen again. So we need to set up, it's a, good, it's a good solution initially, we need to set up Torah schools so that all of Israel will know their Torah, they'll know their Old Testament. It sounds good, right? I mean, that, that, that's not a bad beginning. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of tease, but I'm like, you know, make, make Israel great again. We, we need to get Israel to be faithful to the law. That's all good. And they start creeping in with self-righteousness. They start creeping in with self-congratulatoriness that we know from the Gospels they like to be seen to do their good deeds. It, it creeps in, but it starts out in a very sympathetic place. It doesn't start out, in other words, corrupt. It starts out, as best as we can tell, valid and good, and then it rots. Um, no, the Pharisees, there's nothing in the law of Moses to set up what they're doing. And it's not that their innovations are fundamentally wicked. It's just... They, they made their position up. They made their seats up. Yes, Dean. Oh. No. Oh, no. Nope. No, and Jesus, in one sense, Jesus sanctifies it because in Luke 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue and he, he participates in the custom. So in one sense, their, their innovation that we create a synagogue in every town with a copy of at least part of the, one of the... There was a scroll of Isaiah in Jesus' synagogue, right? And he stands up and have the men read it. Jesus participates in it. As far as that goes, that's a good tradition. Even though the law of Moses doesn't prescribe it, that's a good innovation. Jesus will take part of it. Sure, totally. That, that's all the Pharisaic development. Um, that's their own thing. No, they're not temples. There's no sacrifices being done there. These are little Torah schools. Um, so that everyone gathers and the men stand up and they read from the book of the law and the people hear the law and they, they you know, will hopefully not go astray and worship other gods. That's all good as far as it goes. And that's, that's what they're doing. Yeah. Dean. Back to being put out of the synagogue. Yeah. I presume that would probably also include just sun, shunning socially, but yes. would it also have economic as purchase of grain or meat to make it, make it more difficult? Um, it, it, it certainly could. Um, I, it's, it's a big deal. I, the best modern-day uh, correlative would be if a Muslim were kicked out of the, the mosque. Um, there would likely be a community shutting. There would likely be a community distancing. You may have a much harder time buying and selling. Um, and certainly a man who made his trade by begging is going to probably see a... Although, presumably, now he can work. But... Uh, yeah, no, there, this was, that was a massive thing. I mean, the, we know his parents feared it, and we can imagine why they might fear it. But it, it is the entire community life. The synagogue, um, the Greek word synagoge, soon with, to gather together. It's where the community gathered. Um, it's where the community would come together and, and worship the Lord and hear his law. And this guy's cast out of that now. That, that's, that's what they did. Yeah, it would, it would impact him at virtually every level. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 
Um, so at like one point it said that they were like, he was like blind and wandering the streets like he was homeless. Not homeless. He begged. So if you look in, um, if you look at verse, we didn't look at it this morning. We looked at it last time. John 9, um, verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying to him. So he was a beggar. He was out on the streets begging. Where he slept, whether he stayed in his parents' house or not, or whether he slept on the streets, we're not told. Um, we know he has parents. So my get, if I had to guess, I guess he stayed with them. Possible he didn't, but we don't know. But, like, what if his parents kicked him out to hide their shame that they might um, be sinners? Oh, yeah, what, what the full consequences for this man are, I don't know. Um, we, we know that the parents were afraid of the Jews. So after he's kicked out of the synagogue, what that would entail, what that would necessitate they do, I don't know. It, it may be that they are going to feel a social pressure to distance themselves from him as well. Mm. That, that's entirely possible. The story stops following up on them because what we see is, regardless, this guy comes to full faith in Jesus. He's wor- Worshiping Jesus publicly is a pretty committed act in, in Israel. Um, he's not on the fence. He is, he's a full-blown, un, unapologetic disciple of Christ. And I'm going to trust the good shepherd's going to take care of him. What that looks like, what the rest of his story is, we'll find out in glory. And I'm interested to know what it is. Um, but presumably the Pharisees would do what they could to ostracize and make him pay a price. That seems in keeping with their character and nature. But we'd have to guess what that looks like. Yeah. Okay. What, where, where is where is this all happening? Is this in Jerusalem? I think it's around the temple. It's That's what co- I was thinking. So it wouldn't be in it just a little local synagogue. He's getting kicked out of it's the temple, like the courts. But there's but Jerusalem's got cities around them. The, the Pharisees don't have authority over the temple, so it, that would so that when the Sanhedrin gets together, ah. they so I. It's possible because because John's even title for them. Look, it shifts from and part of what's interesting here. So John starts in our passage with verse 13. They brought him to the Pharisees, right? Yep. But quickly it shifts from the Pharisees to the Jews. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? Verse 18, the Jews did not. And when we find out who, when we find out the parents were afraid, Lest we think, oh, we've got a new group of people here. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. John's clearly using the Jews here for the Pharisees, the bad Jews, the, the, the Pharisees and their ilk, the people in, in that group. But the wouldn't, Jews. The, the, yeah. wouldn't the Sanhedrin, were they like the legally appointed, voted in, however? Well, there's a high priest. Yeah, yes. And yeah. so they're the legal bosses of the temple, so to speak. And yeah. then the Pharisees are like, you said, like the yeah. mega people with red hats. But um, mega, it's mega, M-I-G-A. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when the Pharisees kicked him out, it'd be, it just seems odd that how would they even have the authority to do anything of that? My, my guess would be he doesn't live in Jerusalem. So, so chapter 9 just begins as he passed by. Now we're in some proximity to the temple because Jesus tells him what pool to oh. go to. And that's a pool we know in the temple. Close to the temple. Yeah, um, yeah. So this, this, we're close enough to the temple that this man can go and come back. It's okay. not days so away. So it's kind of the neighborhood of the temple, right. maybe. But okay. we, but, so I'm picturing a community around there. I mean, if you're poor, you're probably not living in Jerusalem. <laughs> Um, high, high rent. <laughs> right. No. So, so presumably one of the synagogue communities surrounding, surrounding Jerusalem. No, the Pharisees, as best as we know, would not have authority to kick him out of the temple. It's a worship system. Now, whether or not they could pull strings with their friends, they're not their friends. They would get together and work with in the Sanhedrin. Um, and there's going to be that, that con- conflagration when they, when they condemn Jesus. But um, we also know it's an uneasy partnering because Paul, Paul sets them on each other. Um, you remember in Acts when they arrest him and he's before the whole Sanhedrin? He pits them against each other. I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection, to which half of them are like, hey, and then they start quarreling. Um, no, it's, it's brilliant. Anyway. Other, yes, Don. Um, I found it interesting that uh, the 
closer that this uh, man got to God or the more he was like Jesus, the more enemies he had. <laughs> yeah. Uh, often, as the gospel is presented today, it's it's the other way. If, you, if you're kind and nice like Jesus was, you know, people will, will be you'll be more friendly to you. The, bu- and, the buzzword is winsome. You want to uh-huh. be winsome. Yeah. That's the buzzword today. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, this, and yeah, this, this man, but in this whole thing, clearly this guy has everything. He gets the gift of sight and then he gets Jesus. I mean, who cares? I mean, this is it's Romans eight. If God's for you, who can be against you? He's, he, Jesus comes and finds him. Jesus is with him. And so clearly he's content to worship Jesus. I mean, to worship Jesus is to be open to the charge of idolatry in Israel. I mean, he's publicly, he's worshiping Jesus to be seen by anyone watching. You know, um, he's committed. He's all in. It's fantastic. He's fearless. I think, I think it's helpful, too, that Peter, uh, as well as others, uh, give us the, the counterbalance in that we can be uh, persecuted or, or afflicted because we're jerks. <laughs> yes, yes. So this man wasn't being that. He no, was. no, he wasn't. Although he had a little bit of spice in his response. You want to be his disciples too? I mean, there's, but I mean, that, yeah, that, that, but certainly fitting because the, the Jews are being unreasonable. And it, you know, he's basically pointing it out. Like, uh-huh. come on, what is this? No, absolutely. But no, absolutely. Is, John's set this up already. The darkness hates the light. And Jesus will say in John 17, the world hates you because it hates me. So if, if you're a follower of Christ and you're being faithful, there ought to be, we should expect there to be a sense in which and aspects in which the world hates us. Um, and that those aspects might be different in different times and seasons. I think it's pretty clear some of the aspects today where some of what we believe is going to be hated by the world. Mm-hmm. And it can change, you know, in, in, uh, in the East, the, they hate our uh, ethic of humility and turn the other cheek. That's the despicable part. And in honor cultures, it's the Christian's ethic of humility that's hated. In our licentious culture, it's our sexual restrictions that's hated. Um, there, there'll always be something that's, that's, that's offensive to the current zeitgeist. Um, and and if, if we're not, if we're fitting in comfortably with the world, we should be, that, that a, something's probably wrong. <laughs> that's, that's the odd thing. So, yeah. Any other thoughts or questions or complaints with any of this? Credit card information. Oh, Katie. Just a quick question. When it says that he is of age, what age would that necessarily be during that time for them? Probably 13 or more. Um, again, this is so, so no, this is it's fascinating because when you try to, one of my, one of my convictions is to try to reason from the text without relying on extra biblical information. So I've often wondered in Luke, when we went through Luke, why tell us Jesus is 12? Why give us this one thing well what we learn extra biblically is that you were bar mitzvah at 13 um and so 13 is when you'd move from the court of when you'd go to worship in the temple you'd go from you'd move from being limited to the court of the women and children to the court of the men and so at 13 you were considered a man um so i think in luke 2 the significance is jesus even before he legally became a man knew who his father truly was the whole the whole impact of that passage where he's left in Jerusalem as Mary says well your father and I have been worried about you and Jesus response is actually I've been about my father's business and the aha is this little boy this young little boy this young man knows who his father truly is and has to gently correct his mother on the fact so before Jesus is even legally a man he knows who his father is Um, so he, this this is someone legally of age that children generally aren't don't have standing to speak in, in legal matters. And so the parents are saying, look, he's not a little child. Go talk to him. I mean, we got the same thing with children today. Um, if someone's child does something, if they're young enough, I'm just going to go talk to the parents, right? Uh, I'm not going to pull aside a two-year-old and, you know, give them a talking to. Um, I'll more likely grab the parents. At a certain age, there's a sense of go talk to him. He's, he's of age. So I think the parents are simply saying, "Why basic?" I mean, what they're basically saying is, "Why are you talking to us? He's not a child; he can speak for himself." 
And they're talking to him because they're, they're hoping to find, they smell something's off and they want to know what's off and they're looking for some detail that gets them out of this problem. The problem is everyone's talking about this big miracle and they don't know how to frame it in a way that they're happy with the solution. Um, so one of the possibilities is maybe this is a fake. Maybe this guy wasn't born blind. Um, and his parents, like, sadly, no, he, is, he was born blind. But we were punting on everything else. So, yeah, he's, he's been bar mitzvahed. I mean, what, Luke, what John gives us is there is an age. He's older than that age. And then actually, biblically, we know that age is 13. Yes. Who's Don? Yeah. Um, maybe it's uh, too subtle, but uh, to me, um, the Pharisees weren't just biased. They were prejudiced. Yes. Um, sure. Uh, uh, for me, a, a bias is just an, uh, an inclination a natural preference mm. where prejudice is I know something before I know it. Um, right. I, I, I've decided before I have the facts. <laughs> right. No, no, certainly. They, we, we learn from this even before they begin the investigation, even before this miracle happens. The one thing Jesus can't be is Messiah. Can't be Messiah. And even... With that prejudice, that pre-commitment, there's still some disagreement. Is he utterly wicked? Well, how can he be utterly wicked and a sinner if he's doing these miracles? There's some confusion amongst them, but they've already ruled out certain answers. And then as this guy pushes back, interestingly, they both have a catalytic effect on each other. As the Pharisees press him, he actually gets clearer and clearer in his faith. As he pushes back, he unifies them. They're no longer divided at the end of this. Mm-hmm. Are they? Even as he's articulating what one of their groups was saying. I mean, that's the other irony. All this man is saying, hey, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing, is what one of their factions was already saying back in verse um, 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Mm-hmm. So in one sense, all the guy says at the end is what this subgroup was saying, mm-hmm. and that they kick him out. Clearly, they're not kicking him out just because he said that. They're kicking him out because the way he said it, and they don't like the implications of how he said it, and he certainly wasn't afraid of them, and they didn't like that. But it's not what he's saying. What he says is what Nicodemus said. What he says is even what some subgroup with them is still saying. It's he's not towing the line, he's not afraid of their authority, and he has the audacity to correct them and point out some of their inconsistencies. So... This is a personal offense, in other words. This is their own pride pushing back. Mm-hmm. This theology doesn't enter into it. Um, yeah. Timothy. Hey, um, quick observation, then a question. Uh, towards the end here of the interaction in, I think, 35, when he says, uh, do you believe in the Son of Man? Yeah. He says, who is he? And he says, you've seen him. I just... Real quick, the guy's seen like a dozen people at this point. <laughs> I don't know. I, no, I maybe think, maybe I think, hundreds. I think, I, think, I think there's a clear double entendre that's intended. Um, we'll get there um, probably not next week. Next week's the cantata. I, don't, I think we're probably going to pause this for two weeks and then pick it back up in January. But, um, but so Greek... I don't want to make everything into Greek mountains and molehills, but there's a verb tense. So Greek's got four past tenses, um, aorist, imperfect, perfect, and pluperfect. And the, the rarer one, the perfect, it has some significance that the English doesn't really have a match for. The perfect verb tense, which is what Jesus uses when he says, you have seen him, it, my, my Greek professor would have us translate it to really emphasize its verbal aspect. You are in the state of having seen him. The, be- the best way I can... It's, it's a past completed action with an emphasis on the current effects of the past completed action. The, the, an example might be you're about to go into a, a ward where people have yellow fever. And don't go... It's okay, I've been inoculated. The emphasis is my current protection because I've been inoculated. Or you're going into the exam and are you worried? I've studied. Well, the real emphasis is I'm currently prepared because I studied, right? So on the cross, to tell us die, it is in the state of having been accomplished, mm-hmm. would be how McDougall would have us translate it. Here, it's you are in the state of having seen him. Mm-hmm. 
well, surely there's some implication of spiritual sight, especially as how Jesus Jesus makes it unambiguous in verse um, in nine thirty nine that there's a spiritual seeing and a spiritual blindness that's in play, right? Um, For judgment that came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. So you have seen him. You are in the state of having seen him. There's a sense in which spiritually this man was seeing Jesus more and more rightly, even before he ever saw Jesus with his physical eyes. Hmm. Um, that's, but yeah, you're stealing thunder from a couple weeks from now. Yes. Sorry. Oh, well. No, but, no, but, that, but that, that play on words, that double entendre is clearly at play in the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My other quick question was just the title of the Son of Man. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if, how deep you're planning to get into that. Oh, and no, I can it's, be it's got to be deep because. Yeah. So this title, son, okay, you're, you're fine. We'll be there in two or three weeks. People forget we had this conversation, so it's fine. <laughs> um, no, G- Jesus' favorite self-designation title is Son of Man, and it's, it's a clever and covert title because it's not an obviously messianic title. That's the predominant term that Ezekiel is called by God. I think over a hundred times in the book of Ezekiel, that might be too much, but close to that. Son of man, this, son of man, that. So in one sense, son of man can just be human, and it's, it's got a prophetic background. It's what Ezekiel is known as. And so it doesn't, it doesn't um, tip anybody off. There's another person. in Dan, Go to Daniel 7. Um. And clearly, the man born blind makes this connection because you don't worship someone because they say they're the son of man, meaning like Ezekiel. Um, Daniel 7. Thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus clearly means that. Turn to Matthew, um, I think, 24. There's a sort of comical scene um, where Jesus makes it clear that's what he means when he speaks about the Son of Man. Matthew 24, might be 26, we'll see. Um, no, it's right here. Um, yeah, 24 and 26. So it, Jesus in 24 is speaking about um, the second coming. Immediately, 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. That's, that's a direct reference to Daniel 7. So it's clear Jesus means that Son of Man. Go to, go to Matthew 26. Um, 26. Jesus is before Caiaphas in the council in 63. Um, Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When the high, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. This is the first time the high priest understands. Whoa, 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 whoa. All this time you've been calling yourself the Son of Man, you meant Daniel 7, Son of Man? He rips his clothes and we're done. That's blasphemy. I mean, it's brilliant. Jesus has been using this title the entire time, and only at the climax of his trial does he make it clear. Let me tell you what I mean by son of man. I mean Daniel 7. <laughs> the high priest is just floored and says, um, he, he tore his robes and said he is utter blasphemy. What further witness do we need? Yeah, he's been using that title the entire time, the last three or four years. And, and they didn't put it together. So it's a very, very shrewd messianic title. The people at the top of the class, the people with eyes to see and ears to hear, get it, like the man born blind here. 
when Jesus says, I'm the son of man, who is he? You've, you are in the state of having seen him. He, you don't worship someone because they're immortal. You don't worship someone even because they're a prophet like Ezekiel. Worshiping the one in Daniel 7 makes sense. So clearly, the man born blind puts that together. But yeah, that's, Jesus means something much, much greater than mortal or even Ezekiel-like prophet when he says son of man. But some people get that. Most of the people goes right over their heads to the very end when he makes it explicit. And then that explicitness is precisely what they use to kill him. I mean, that's going to escalate to the cross immediately. Yeah. And unique to Christianity, right, that our Savior is literally both of those things, yeah. right? Well, not literally yeah. the son of a man, I suppose. No, he, no Human. He's, but he's mortal. Yeah, he's a, mortal. He's a fleshling, sure, yeah. And, and son of God. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, such a... Absolutely. Cool. Amen. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what's, what we're celebrating at Christmas is, is fundamentally God became man. God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And the reason he took on flesh wasn't fundamentally to be a cute baby. It was so he could be nailed to a tree and die. He, the, the incarnation was necessary that he might be crucified. He became mortal that he might die, mortis, die. <laughs> you know, um, that's, that's the point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Any other, uh, any other questions from this morning from the uh, Pharisees and the man born blind? Um, any other thoughts or questions on any of this stuff? No, no. Oh, Serena's, oh dear. So if the Sanhedrin is made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, what, and they're the grass, the Pharisees are the grassroots people, what place are they worried the Romans taking from them? I'm assuming the Romans would come and flatten them. Israel's, Israel's best as we can tell. Israel has a special dispensation from Rome. So normally... What Rome does is they do a little god swapping. So historically, the the big trifecta foreign powers have to deal with is the threefold bond of the people, the land, and the god. Um, most of the nations viewed their gods as local, so if you defeated a person, you defeated their gods. Um, that's part of the reason why Ezekiel begins with the vision of God on a mobile throne chariot. And the point is, I'm still God even when you're off the land. Um, so Babylon dealt with the problem of the people, the land, and the God. Just we've got people on the land with the same with their religion. They are much stiff, more stiff-necked and hard to get to do what you want them to do. So Babylon would move people around and weaken the power of your God. If your God's the God of this valley, we'll get you out of that valley, and then where's your God? Rome's answer was you could stay where you were, but you'd take some gods from the other people. So he'd bring in some Greek gods and Roman gods, and he'd mix it around. He took the Phoenicians, and that's where you get Bacchus from. And, and, it, and then the notion there is if, if you're ever going to resist, can you really be sure Athena's on your side? Because after all, they're worshiping Athena in Corinth. And so you can't, you can't be quite so, I mean, because in, in, the, Greek, in the, the Greco-Roman world, all of the gods were city-states. So Athens had Athena, who, I don't know who Sparta had, but um, they'd each have different regional gods. So Rome gives the Jews a dispensation where they don't have to worship all the other gods because the, the Jews were ravenously monotheistic. And so that's why Paul in Acts is trying to, Trying, the Jews are trying to push the Christians out from under their sort of their their uh, dispensation, their their um, permission to not do that, and and Paul's worshiping and trying to start in the synagogues. I think precisely for the same thing. And eventually, what's going to get the Christians persecuted is their refusal to call Caesar Lord. So, so if Rome came in and like they're going to do in 780. Titus is going to come in in 780 and flatten Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and scatter the Jews, and the Jews will no longer have permission to not worship the other gods. So even though the Sadducees have more to lose with the temple being destroyed, the Pharisees still are going to lose their prominence. The, the Rome is not going to be cool with these Torah schools that teach one god only. That that's not going to fly. So even though they don't have as much wealth and as much clout as the Sadducees, they're still tenaciously holding on to the little they have. Does that make sense? Okay. Cool. 
Any other thoughts or questions? We've got about 10 minutes here on the clock. Okay. Let's go back to John chapter um, 9 and the 10 then. I want to look at a few things here. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating storytelling on John's part. Like I said, normally when Jesus works a sign in John's gospel, he works a sign that sets up the discourse. Here, he works the sign. Jesus retreats off the stage for a few minutes, although the entire discussion is about him. Who is he? And then he shows back up, and by allowing, I'm just trying to set where this is going, by allowing the Pharisees to reveal their corrupt nature as shepherds, it sets up his good shepherd discourse. Um, And he has some really harsh things to say about them. And that's the way this text flows. This, This man, let's see how Israel's would be shepherds treat this baby sheep. They devour him. They cast him out. Um, and so look at how chapter 10 starts. I really think chapter 10 is a terrible chapter division. I mean, only, in, only to the degree that it suggests this is some new topic. Um, the text clearly ends in verse 1021. Look at 1021, then we'll go back. 1021, others said, well, 19 to 21. 10, 19 to 21. There was again a great division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Clearly, we're still dealing with the aftermath of the man who was born blind. And then 22 makes it clear we're jumping ahead. New time. At the time of the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and we move on. So the, this is all one narrative unit. This is all one text piece. And so suggesting chapter 10's inclusion, suggesting this is something different. No, this is the the speech, the discourse that normally has accompanied the miracles, John just included the fourfold interaction with the man's neighbors, with the Pharisees, the Pharisees and his parents, the Pharisee and the man. Then Jesus shows up and speaks. That's the the narrative flow. And then 10, it's all about castigating the Pharisees And and how he, in contrast, is the one true and good shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, which is to say, these people are not legitimate shepherds. They're self-appointed. They didn't come through the door. They climbed over the fence. They're thieves. They're, they're self-appointed. They are usurpers. Um, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls to his own sheep by name and leads them out. But when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, for they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's them. He's describing them. Um, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. They see the wolf of Rome threatening to come take their position in power, and they abandon the sheep. Um, leave the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know my father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there'll be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That's what Jesus has to say. That's his discourse on the other side of this miracle. And by allowing the Pharisees to set up the contrast, you get the foil, the good shepherd, contrasted with the false shepherds, the faithful shepherd who's willing to die for his sheep, and the wicked shepherds who will let the sheep die to protect them. That's, that's what's set up by all of this. 
five minutes. Any other thoughts or questions? Where I can yes, Caleb, up front here. I was about to say I could let you go early, but looks like that's not in the cards. I just had a question. At what point do you think it uh, switched from maybe the Pharisees being blind themselves to the Lord blinding them? Or like, because it talks about how he came to give sight to the blind and to blind those who have sight. Uh, I mean, they obviously have rejected Christ yeah. since the beginning. I mean, yeah. probably since John the Baptist, actually, yeah. uh, and his ministry. And so um, at what point, or was there a point maybe in which there's like a clarity of, hey, like, it's no longer them choosing to be blind, but the Lord is just blinding them because they had already chosen their path. I think, I think we're meant to, you know, John, John go to John 12. Um, he, he quotes Isaiah in John 12, where um, we see both sides of this. Um, they blinded themselves and they were blinded. That, that's the reality. John 12 we read this earlier, um, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed, who has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So verse 37 clearly is putting them at fault, them to blame. They, he did so many signs, and they still did not believe. Verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah again said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Well, I think John is offering that as a summary of the entire narrative arc of the Pharisees in John's gospel. It is a picture of them refusing to believe and them being blinded. Both are happening. Now, where we are on that movement, I couldn't pinpoint in any one location, but I think as a summary of what we've just seen, starting from the Pharisees sending out their, uh, their auditors to John. Who are you? Why are you baptizing? What are you doing? Them sending Nicodemus to Jesus. That narrative arc that starts curious and investigating and eventually becomes kill him, we have no king but Caesar, kill him, is an arc of them refusing to believe even though he'd done all these miracles, and it's an arc of God hardening their hearts and blinding them. And we're to understand the blinding is just and right because they wouldn't believe. So we know that's happening. I don't know if we could parse out where they're at in any given one moment. This is the story of them refusing to believe. This is the story of them being blinded, is how John summarizes it in 12. Do you think that uh, it has any relation to uh, the writer of Romans talking about Pharaoh's hardening heart? Sure, sure. Here here the connection's more with, um, with Isaiah. So... In Isaiah, hold on, we have five minutes. Okay, we can do this. Okay, go to Isaiah, I think, three. Um, try to be quick here. We'll see. I make no promises. Um, or is it Isaiah one? Where is it? The year King Isaiah was... Anointed, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Is that six? That's six. Okay, Isaiah six. There we go. Okay. So, um, this is the reason I say this is John references this in twelve, and he tells us this is Jesus. Isaiah wrote these things because he saw his glory. So, which member of the Trinity is pictured here in the the throne room in the temple? Is Jesus, according to John twelve. Um, and, you know, this holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I said, woe is me. And he cuts down. Verse 8, then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, who shall I send and who will go? Then I said, here am I, send me. Go and say to this people. And this is what he's referencing with he has hardened them. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now that sounds rather harsh, but the imagery is the imagery of idolatry. Um, we don't have time to go there. I could give you the references, but seeing but not seeing, having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing, that's the way God describes the idols, the idols of the people. They have painted on mouths, but they don't talk. They have painted on eyes, but they don't see. And so the turn to Psalm one fifteen eighteen. 
quickly. Psalm 115. Eight, not 18. Psalm 115, eight. Um, this is the principle. So, so as you asked with Pharaoh, indirectly, I'd, I'd say it's more this language is judicial hardening against idolatrous people. So the, the points made explicitly here in four to eight, um, or go back even further, uh, verse, let's start in verse one. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That's the principle. You, you, you will be conformed to the likeness of your God. And so when God starts talking with these people, make them blind and not seeing, it's not some arbitrary, capricious thing. It's a judgment on idolatry. It's, it's, it's saying, make these people like their gods. There's a, so and you choose to reject the light. You hate the light. You're going to run from the light the Lord may well and righteously and justly harden you in that stance, um, which is similar in that sense than, sure, to Pharaoh. The text says Pharaoh hardened himself, the Lord hardened him, and I don't think it's they took turns. Pharaoh was more than happy to be hardened. That's everything he wanted. And God's, okay. You're, I mean, C.S. Lewis said, there are those two types of people on this earth, those who say to the Lord, your will be done, and those to whom the Lord says, your will be done. You want darkness? You want to get away from the light? Your will be done. Right. So, so we're not, it's not a capricious judgment. It's, it's when all of Jesus, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Whoever has eyes to see, let them see. He's speaking. He's using this imagery, speaking to an idolatrous people who've been conformed to their idols. If you're blind and can't see, you're not innocent. You're blind because you've chosen to blind yourself. That's, that's the, uh, the imagery here. So when John cites Isaiah, that passage in Isaiah in John 12, um, where he says, hey, let's close there and we'll call it a day, John 12. With that in mind, see how John exactly makes that application. Um, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him which sets up verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Because God's hardening of them is in response to their rejection. Yeah, they don't want the sun. They don't want to believe. Okay. It, the, the, the analogy is heat and light can melt. Heat and light can harden and, and, and take something that's pliable and make it rock hard. These people in their unbelief harden into position, um, but we're not to view them as innocent. They're being hardened into what they always wanted and were to begin with. Absolutely. Okay, we're at time, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. God bless. Good day.